Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Guy Laliberte began his circus career on the streets of Quebec. He lived off the handouts of bystanders. He played the accordion, and he walked on stilts, and he even swallowed fire. He eventually gathered a troupe of performers. In 1987, he and his friends, they risked the little money that they had in order to perform in the Los Angeles Arts Festival. Laliberte bought a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. There was no going back. But he never needed a return ticket, for his troupe was a big hit. They ended up moving to Las Vegas. Today, they're known as Cirque Soleil, and Guy is the CEO. It's estimated that his net worth is about two and a half billion dollars. Ursula Burns, was born to a single mom. She lived in a housing project in New York City. Her mother ran a daycare center out of her home, ironed shirts, in order to make enough money to send Ursula to a private school. Eventually, this woman graduated from NYU and was hired as an intern at Xerox. Today, Ursula Burns is the CEO of that same company. She is the first African-American woman to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Leonardo Del Vecchio was one of five kids to a widowed mother who couldn't support them. He was sent to live in an orphanage. Del Vecchio worked in a factory making molds for auto parts and for eyeglass frames. He even lost one of the tips of his fingers, his index finger, in an accident at work. At age 23, Del Vecchio, he opened his own molding shop. Today, his shop has become the world's largest maker of prescription eyewear and sunglasses. Ray-Bans and Oakleys have made this former orphan a billionaire. Del Vecchio's net worth? About $10 billion. I mean, don't you love a rags-to-riches story? I do. The shoe shine kid, he works hard. He saves his money. He gets a big break. And then he ends up a huge success. But with all due respect to Guy Laliberte and Ursula Burns and Leonardo Del Vecchio, the greatest rags to riches story is yours. For spiritually speaking, you have gone from rags to riches. You started out a pauper, an orphan, 
on the streets. And look at you now. You're a child of the king. You're somebody in Christ. Today you sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what we find here in Ephesians chapter 2. Your story, my story, every Christian story is a rags to riches story. You see, Paul compares what we were on our own with what we've now become in Christ. And the contrast is far more dramatic than any of the stories I told you earlier. Look at Paul's words, his first words here in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, rather than just rags to riches, we've gone from death to life. Paul begins chapter 2 now as a flashback. He describes our lifestyle before we came to Jesus. He talks about our B.C. days. You know what those are. Our before Christ days. And he does so not to condemn us, but to illustrate just how far that we have now come in Christ Jesus. Realize there are two ways to measure a Christian's spiritual progress. First, we can look and we can compare with where you are now with where you need to be. And quite frankly, that can be a little depressing. But on the other hand, we can compare where you are now with where you once were. And that can be very, very encouraging. For with us, God has splashed his light onto a very dark canvas. Using the words of a popular song, Paul could have prefaced verse 1. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. And Paul's condition, in fact, every man and woman's condition is dire. It's grim. We weren't just ignorant. We weren't just maladjusted. We weren't just immature or even sick. No, we were dead. Verse 1 informs us, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, not physically, of course, but spiritually speaking, we were dead. You know, even in inflationary times, the wages of sin remains the same. It's always death. Sin causes death. You see, when God created that first man, Adam, he did so with three components in three parts. A body, a mind, and a spirit. With his body, Adam related to the world around him. With his mind, he had the ability to relate to himself. But with his spirit, he could relate to God. And yet when Adam sinned, the Bible says that he died. His body and mind didn't die. He still had a pulse. His lungs continued to expand. His brain waves still registered. No, the part of Adam that died was his spirit. Adam became dead to God. You know, in the 1960s, radical atheists, they trumpeted the notion, God is dead. And it might have seemed that way to them. But God isn't dead. It's man who's dead to God. The spiritual part of every person is dead to the living God. In essence, death is separation. When our body dies, our spirit departs or separates from our body. James chapter 2 verse 26 provides an interesting definition for death. It says the body without the spirit is dead. Now this might not be a clinical definition. I mean, there's no device where you can connect leads to a body and detect the departure of their spirit. But this is a very accurate definition. 
And just as the human body without the human spirit is dead, likewise, your spirit without God is also dead. Listen to Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin causes spiritual death, and spiritual death is separation from God. The spirit of a person apart from God can be swayed by temptation. It can be motivated by evil and by demons. Unlike a dead body, a dead spirit remains impressionable. It can be influenced by all kinds of persuasion except God. It's dead to God. Think of our culture's current fascination with zombies. I think this is so interesting. Who would have thunk it? Zombies. And yet 16 million Americans tune in each week to catch the latest episode of The Walking Dead. The top-rated cable series of all time features zombies, no less. But you know, all you have to do to find zombie-like creatures is go to a school or to an office or to the market. A zombie is an animated corpse. It functions outwardly, but it's dead inwardly. And this is a fitting description of a person without Christ. Folks lost in their sin are walking, talking corpses in essence. They're zombie-like. 1 Timothy 5 verse 6 speaks of a lady who's dead while she lives. Oh, she exists physically, but spiritually she's dead. She responds to external stimulus, but inwardly she's unaware of her higher calling and her moral duties. Most people have even seared their conscience and have silenced the image of God that's been embedded in them. A person without God is not all that he or she is supposed to be. They're certainly not all that God made them to be. A person dead in their sins and trespasses is like a car with a fouled out spark plug. They're not running on all cylinders. No wonder they sputter and misfire. They consist of body and soul, but their spirit is dead. They're two-thirds of the human God created. No wonder life is such a struggle. I mean, lost is a fitting description. It was said of Christopher Columbus, he didn't know where he was going when he started. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. That sounds like how a lot of people live their lives. This is true of the person separated from God. You see, life without God is a never-ending source of frustration. Robert Orban, he puts it, Do you ever get the feeling that life is a violin solo and you're wearing mittens? I mean, it just doesn't work out. You put your hands on the frets, but you can't distinguish what notes to play. Life is confusing and chaotic for the person who's been separated from God. This is the person that's dead in trespasses and sins. Keep in mind the difference now between decay and death. There are no degrees to death. I mean, you're either dead or alive. There's no middle ground here. It's like being pregnant. You can't be half pregnant or almost pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. And the same is true with death. I mean, some dead people are no more dead than other dead people. If you're dead, you're fully 100% dead. 
Whereas decay, on the other hand, is progressive. It's incremental. All dead folks are dead, but they decay at different rates, don't they? And as a result, folks who are dead, they emit different odors. You see, all sinners are spiritually dead, but some are just bigger stinkers than others. Reminds me of the famous musical composer. He died. It was said that afterwards, he spent his time decomposing. You get it? Yeah, get it? Yeah. I mean, some sinners, they keep up this sweet, cordial, respectable facade, whereas others dive headfirst into perversity. The sophisticated socialite, she might not stoop to the same evil acts as the demented deviant, but both the sweetheart and the hard heart are every bit as dead. You see, that's why I say the world that we live in today is a giant graveyard of walking, breathing, spiritual stiffs. And this leaves people vulnerable to spiritual manipulation. Notice verse 2 tells us, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice the two scavengers that take a bite out of the spiritually dead. The course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Or literally Satan himself. You see, according to Paul, Satan controls the airwaves. He's the prince of the air. His domain is the atmosphere. This is why I believe he uses media to manipulate our values and to indoctrinate us with his evil. Just think about that. The world and the devil swoop in like vultures on roadside carcasses. And they consume those people that have been separated by God. Folks who are dead have no defense. You see, the course of this world are the ungodly values that people get wrapped up in. It's the false perspective that permeates all cultures and in all ages. You know, we're so inoculated to this world that most people are blind to the influence it has on them until they come to Christ. As one man confessed, my sin was all the more incurable since I didn't think of myself as a sinner. This is many people's problem. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, three attitudes make up the course of this world. John writes, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, what we call worldliness, it's really the ungodly way of feeling great and looking great and trying to be great. As John says, it's a lifestyle not of the Father. The lust of the flesh is the belief that feeling great can be found in physical pleasures rather than in spiritual joys. The lust of the eyes measures looking great solely by outward beauty, appearance rather than character. And the pride of life assumes that being great is making a splash in this world rather than living your life for eternity. And sadly, this is what makes the world go round. Physical pleasure and outward beauty and immediate fame. This is what most of the people around you are living for today. In contrast to worldliness, godliness is all about spiritual joy and inward beauty and eternal impact. 
You see, the world and the devil has sucked many of us into a false way of evaluating and living our lives. People are separated from God. And that makes them easily seduced by the world and then also snared by Satan. Notice Paul here refers to the devil as the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. Oh, Satan knows how to work us. Satan knows how to play us. Satan uses the ways of this world to draw us into a superficial lifestyle. A life that's all pop and fizzle and very little substance. Satan loves to create hollow people. Folks lack integrity and dignity today. They're unable to keep a commitment like the tin man. They lack heart. Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 depicts the life we once lived before we came to Christ. Haggai writes, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. What an incredible description of life. People live to satisfy their physical pleasures. More food, more drink, more clothes. But it's never enough. Haggai says, life is like going shopping with a bottomless shopping bag. You stuff the bag and stuff the bag. But at the end of the day, after you've checked out, you come to realize you threw away your resources and you have nothing to show for your efforts. I'll never forget the Time Magazine article that summed up the decade of the 90s in the following words. Anything goes, but nothing lasts. And this is still the life that Satan engineers. He sends people on a wild goose chase without a goose. We were separated from God by our sin. We were seduced by the world and snared by Satan. But it gets worse. Sin stained us at the very core of who we were. Verse 3 adds to our demise. He says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This Greek word translated sins in verse 1 is harmatia. It means to miss the mark. Think of missing a kick. Wide right. Or maybe turning the ball over on downs. You see, harmatia is to fall short of God's demands, his standards. It's to end up less than the person God intended you to be. This is the nature of sin. Actually, it's a term related to archery. It means to miss the bullseye. But that's really only part of our problem. For notice what we're told here. We have been, we are also by nature children of wrath. This makes the problem deeper. Our sin, our tendency to err, isn't an occasional miss. It's more serious than that. Our aim is off. Sin has warped us. We can no longer shoot straight. You see, our modern world believes that man is basically good. Oh, at times he slips up and does evil, but all in all, he's good at heart. And yet the Bible teaches us just the opposite. On occasion, we might slip up and do some good, but our basic nature is evil. Our tendency, our natural inclination is to be selfish and proud and rebellious. 
As it said, your sin doesn't make you a sinner. You're a sinner, so you sin. It's man's nature to sin. Once a preacher, he advertised his sermon that morning with the sermon title, Why Your Dog Does What He Does. And his premise was simple. Your dog does what he does because he's a dog. I mean, a dog acts like a dog because he's a dog. It's his nature. And this is why we sin. It's what we were. We shouldn't be shocked when we hear about the increase in violence or some new perversity that's popped up among the folks around us who don't know Christ. They're only being what they are. Mankind is drawn to sin. It reminds me of the pastor who stood up one morning and he mentioned in his sermon that there were 726 specific sins. Afterwards, he was besieged with requests from people who wanted a copy of his list. You see, it's our nature to be drawn towards sin. So let me sum this up for you. Here's where we were before we came to Jesus. How about zombie-like creatures trying to feel good and look good and be good by stuffing in a shopping bag, stuffing stuff in a shopping bag that has a hole in it bottom. And as foolishly as we were acting, we couldn't do any better since we were only being true to what we really were. In other words, we were separated from God and we were seduced by the world and we were snared by Satan and we were stained by sin. We were trapped in a life of futility and failure. You know, I heard it said, the most deceptive trait about the chains of sin is that they're too light to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. I mean, before we came to Christ, we had no idea what a vice grip sin had on us. Ultimately, the person ruled by sin will be the person who is ruined by sin. And this was my plight. I imagine it was yours. It's kind of tough reading the first several verses here in Ephesians chapter 2. By the time we get to chapter three, or verse 3, it seems that all hope is lost. But that's why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 is perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible. For at our darkest moment, God intervenes. Notice verse 4 begins, but God. Those are the two most stunning words in all the Bible. But God. Think of the wagon train pinned down under attack by the Comanches on the warpath when suddenly you hear a bugle and you see the cavalry coming over the hill. Or think of the bases loaded with a one-run lead and your starting pitcher's out of steam. But there he is, that unhittable reliever jogging in from the bullpen. Help is on the way. This is the tone here in verse 4. But God, or to get a better sense of it, just turn those words around. God butted in. We were partying on a sinking ship without the first thought of God. But God loved us enough to crash our party. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, it's been said, justice is getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. But mercy, that's not getting what we do deserve. And wow, how I need mercy. You know, God is good at lavishing mercy upon his people. You know, God is rich in multiple ways. The Bible says he owns cattle on a thousand hills. 
He has an abundance of gold, so much so that he uses it as asphalt to pave the streets in heaven. But we should be glad that God is rich in what we need most, and that's mercy. Understand, our God, he's the God of the second chance. I've heard it said, God's throne is not made of marble, but mercy. That's why he calls it the mercy seat. Sinners bow at God's feet only to find mercy. An old man was on his deathbed. His family had all gathered around him one last time. Someone commented, well, dead is going to receive his reward. The old man heard it and he perked up and he shouted, no, I'm not. I'm going to receive mercy. Only a fool wants what's coming to him, what he deserves. Hey, I want mercy. I need lots of mercy. Even though we did nothing to warrant it or to initiate it, God stepped into our situation. God didn't stand back until he saw potential in us. Until we look like we might finally come around to loving him and worship him and serving him. No, to the contrary. God took the risk of being rejected. He reached out to us at our lowest point in our most desperate hour. While we were dead in trespasses and sins. While we were separated and seduced and snared and stained. God stepped in to show us mercy. Long before you ever thought of cleaning up your act. Jesus paid the price to forgive you of your sins. Why is it we humans have such a difficult time initiating love? As kids, we develop crushes on one another, and we write little notes to our potential sweetheart. Do you love me? Check yes, no, or maybe. Hey, I don't want to really reveal my love for her until I'm sure that, that she's somebody that's going to love me. It's a fear of being rejected of our love being spurned. And yet you need to know God had no such fear. Jesus hung on the cross. He held nothing back. In naked love, Jesus hung there. In essence, he was saying, I love you enough to die for you, whether you ever return my love or not. In short, this kind of strong love, this is what we call mercy. Verse 5 continues to roll out the riches of God's mercy. He says, even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. I mean, when God butted in to our situation, he performed an operation on us. You see, rather than mess around and treat the symptoms of sin, Dr. God went straight for the cure. He signed you up for a divine transplant. He placed his Holy Spirit in your hollow spirit. He made alive what was dead. Literally, a spiritual resurrection occurred in you. Here is where I prefer the old King James word, quickened. God quickened you to life. God sparked new life in you. In essence, he put the paddles of the Holy Spirit on your chest. And he, boom, he jolted you to life. You were dead in trespasses, but now he has made you alive to God in Christ. You see, because of sin, the spirit of man is separated from God. Imagine your house 
in a power outage. Say it's been 24, 30 hours or so. The house is cold. It's dark. It's eerie. It's dreary. And then all of a sudden, I love that sound. I mean, somewhere down the line, a repairman has hit the switch and suddenly the power comes surging back into the cold wires of your house. The furnace roars back to life. Your house lights up like a Christmas tree. The appliances all start to chirp. You ever heard that sound? Everyone cheers. Power has been restored. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When God first formed the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, the Bible tells us that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In the same way, after his resurrection, Jesus breathed on his followers. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He imparted spiritual life. Picture this limp, lifeless glove. A little limp, lifeless glove. I wish I had one with me. You hold it up. You kind of flap it in the wind. No big deal. But then suddenly, you slip your hand into that glove. It takes shape. It becomes aware, alive. And now it has the power to do your will. Well, you see, this is what God does in the life of a believer. He slips his spirit into your spirit. And he takes over the living in your life. Ever known someone who snapped out of a coma? I mean, mentally they were unconscious. Physically their body was wilting away. Then suddenly their faculties returned. They were aware. They could talk. Well, it's even more exciting when we see someone snap out of it spiritually. They become alive to God. They suddenly become aware of his blessings. A whole new world opens up to them. One man writes, Fear not that your life shall come to an end but rather that it shall never have a beginning. In Christ, we become fully alive by the Spirit of God. And that's not all. According to verse 6, another marvelous thing happens to people who put their faith in Christ. He says that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only were you made alive, but you were elevated. In that moment you gave your life to Jesus, he raised you up to sit with Christ. You were lifted and seated in Christ Jesus. You know, whenever my grandkids come over to my house, first thing I usually do is I always bring them into the kitchen and I lift them up and I sit them up on top of the refrigerator. It's kind of the thing to do at my house. I don't really know why I sit on top of the refrigerator. All I remember is that that's what my dad did to my kids. And so that's what I'm now doing to my grandkids. First thing I do is I sit them up on top of the refrigerator. And don't you laugh. Have you ever sat on top of the refrigerator? Probably not. That's why you're laughing. Think about it. I would imagine it's a really special feeling to be up there on top of the refrigerator. I mean, you got all you'll ever need right underneath you. It's a tremendous view. Suddenly, everybody's been looking down at you, but now everybody's looking up at you. And this is exactly what happened to us when we gave our lives to Jesus. God set us on top of the refrigerator. Earlier in Ephesians, we mentioned that as Christians, we live in two locations. Physically, we are in Atlanta 
But spiritually, we are in Christ. And this isn't just religious verbiage or Christianese. This is truly our spiritual reality. In a sense, there is a part of you and me that has a daily, constant access to heaven. In the spiritual realm, there's this virtual reality for us in which we're actually seated in Christ. Paul conveys this same thought to the Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 3, he writes, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm not sure how this works. Its mechanics are truly a mystery. I just know it's true for those who have faith. Read the biographies of Christians who've made a difference in this world. And you'll find that in every single case, without exception, they had a spiritual awareness that transcended their circumstances. There was a spiritual place in the land of faith where they could go and retreat and find rest and renew their strength. A seat in heavenly places. Lately, I've done a lot of, been on a lot of airplanes, and I've noticed whenever the pilot encounters the least little bit of turbulence, he doesn't hesitate. He turns on the fasten your seatbelt light. He orders his passengers to return to their seats and buckle their seatbelts. And you know, this is a good habit for us. For whenever life starts to get rough for you, you should return to your seat. You should remember that you're elevated in Christ Jesus. You're seated in Christ. You have access to the help and treasures of heaven, no less. Return to your seat and buckle your seatbelt. Life always looks better sitting on top of the refrigerator. And this is so vital for us to learn. Have you learned this? I mean, before we do anything else in the Christian life, we first need to be able to sit. You know, a lot of new Christians, they blow out of the starting gate. They're so excited. They want to run, and they want to fight battles, and they want to stand against the enemy, and they want to tackle life's challenges. But how would a toddler fare if he or she tried to crawl and walk and run without first learning to sit? There's a balance that has to be struck. There's an equilibrium and a steadiness that first has to be mastered before we can begin to navigate life. And the same is true spiritually. Before we get thrown into combat, before our world gets rocked, we need to know where our seat is located and how to buckle the seatbelt. In Christ, in Christ, that's where we'll weather the storm and we'll regain our balance and we'll renew our strength. And then notice in verse 7, this rags to riches story, it reaches a crescendo. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever watched the end of the film before you saw the whole movie? It spoiled the story, didn't it? But not so in life. For Paul wants us to know the end of our faith from the point of its beginning. It's helpful to know how it all culminates. Here he tells us what we'll be doing when our trials are over and when we're finally home in heaven. Have you ever wondered what you'll be doing for all eternity? You know, heaven lasts for eternity. <laughs> and forever is a very long time. I mean, I can think of a lot of pleasures and pastimes I'd like to do for a while, 
But for eternity, I love chocolate ice cream. I mean, I wouldn't mind if one of the first things I did when I got to heaven was eat some chocolate ice cream. But every day, forever and ever, I'm not so sure. You know, as a kid, I had, a, had the notion that we'd all be spending forever in heaven, sitting on a bank of clouds, strumming our harp, you know, being bored out of our minds. This is why I never really got excited about going to heaven. Author Susan Ertz, she makes an interesting comment. She says, millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, we want to live forever, but nobody thinks about what we want to do forever. Well, in verse 7, Paul tells us how we'll spend eternity, what we'll do forever. He says that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It'll take for all eternity for God to reveal his infinite mercies toward us. Here's the first entry on your heavenly daytimer. Just go ahead and pin it in, friend. For the first thousand ages and eons to come, you will spend every day, all day, comprehending and stretching out your little brain to grasp the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness and mercies for you. We'll spend forever plunging the depths of God's love for us. Imagine going from one ooh and ah to the next forever and ever and ever. Hey, there will never be a boring moment, a new discovery, a new surprise, a new facet of God's love for you will be unveiled. Every moment of every day, a new joy awaits us around every corner. Heaven will be a love feast. One year, the kids were small. When the kids were small, we, Kathy and I, we took them to a nursing home at Christmas time. We shared with the residents there and we brightened their day and on the ride home, I explained to the kids that God would, will reward us one day uh, with, you know, for our good deeds and for our good works. And it was a good thing that we'd gone to the nursing home. Well, my son, Zach, always the theologian, he sort of piped in. He said, but dad, if we're going to have everything in heaven, what's going to be left for God to use to reward us? Oh, my. He had a pretty good question. And Pastor Sandy was stumbling for an answer. But it was my six-year-old princess. It was little Natalie who bailed me out. I'll never forget it. She jumped in and she said, Zach, God will reward us with hugs and kisses. <laughs> and won't that be enough? Won't that be enough? That'll be all we want. Other rewards will pale in comparison to his affections. And you know, Natalie's words that day are the best explanation of heaven I've ever heard. God will reward us with his hugs and kisses. Indeed. Well, what better way to end our rags to riches story from enemies of God to recipients of his hugs and kisses? That's our story. If you know Jesus, that's your story. 
And if you don't know him, if you come to him today, if you come in this room today thinking there's no hope, realize that the Holy Spirit wants to write you into this script. He wants to make this story your story. He does. Hey, recall those two really big words. But God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you're not beyond God's reach. He is rich in mercy. He has more than enough mercy to cover your sins and quicken you from death to life. Oh, let God crash your party. And you be quick to join his. For you, even you, can go from rags to riches in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.